I knew that I was going to be in a market with a bunch of 800 pound gorillas, which I love, by the way, I love being in a market with, with that kind of, uh, traction because that means I don't have to educate the market. The market's already educated. I just need to, to laser focus on a specific segment of that market where I feel like I can outperform the 800 pound gorillas. And so from day one, it was all about betting on things that you can't write a check for. Because anything you can write a check for, you better believe the 800-pound gorillas are going to do that. <laughs> so we invested in content strategy from day one, even when we weren't good at it. Ground Up, episode 31. Nick Francis has worked with his Help Scout co-founders, Denny and Jared, for the last 13 years. Now back then, this was pre-Help Scout, when Nick and his co-founders were running a consultancy helping companies build web apps. Since Nashville, the city where they all lived at the time, wasn't known for attracting venture capital, Nick and his co-founders were inspired by a different playbook. Of software companies that started as service businesses, which enabled them to bootstrap their way to early success. Companies like Basecamp, Litmus, Campaign Monitor, MailChimp, FreshBooks, just to name a few. So they took on clients as a way of improving their craft. They wanted to get really good at building products for the web. Along the way, Francis became fascinated with the customer service space and what makes a great customer experience. Dissatisfied with the products in that market, he wanted to build something that was optimized for a great experience first. Seven years after launching Help Scout, they've grown to 75 employees across 50 cities have been profitable since year two, and have raised $12 million as a tool to help further their mission. Here's the story of everything in between. I've been working with my co-founders, Denny and Jared, for over 13 years now, and we've been doing Help Scout for seven, so we just now passed. We've been working on Help Scout longer than, than we had previously, but yeah, I mean, we were super inspired by companies like 37 Signals, now Basecamp, Litmus, Campaign Monitor, FreshBooks. There were some really, in MailChimp, really incredible bootstrap companies that started their uh, history by just doing client work, doing service work, right? And it helped them not only hone in on their craft, but learn uh, what it took to build a software business. And so we certainly learned from that approach and liked that approach a lot. We lived in Nashville, Tennessee at the time. And so Funding for tech startups isn't really a common thing there, and so knew that was that was going to be the path for us. And so we we really started the agency consultancy, whatever you want to call it, just the three of us, as a way of improving on the on our craft. We just wanted to get really good at building products for the web, and why not have customers pay us for it? That's always a bonus. So that's what we did. And over the course of that time, we worked a lot in online retail. We did work with some people that made different web apps and we would work with them on design or do kind of the full stack thing. And as a result of that, I just became really fascinated with the customer service space. Have always been deeply fascinated by what makes a great experience and passionate about, about what goes into that. And I spent a couple of years just kind of watching the market and being overall dissatisfied with the products that were available in that market. I felt like everything was sort of built with this enterprise point of view that was that was all about maximizing scale and didn't really think about the customer experience. And so I, I for a long time, about two years, I wanted to build something that was optimized for a great customer experience first because I think that's what especially small businesses 
resonate with. That's what I resonated with at the time. We were building some things on the side and frankly didn't want to, you know, I wasted a few Saturdays trying to set up different help desks and they just didn't feel like the right experience. And so I really got to thinking on that problem uh, long and hard. We, we decided to put some time into it and the rest is sort of history. Right. One of those was, was it a product that you were building the, to sort of manage an RSS feed, right? And then yeah. it was it, it was free if I'm and, and you were generating a lot of support and feature requests, right? And that's sort of kind of what maybe inspired the solution for that problem. Yeah. So on the side, we built a project called Feed My Inbox. It literally happened over a weekend. We, we shipped it after a weekend. And it's a, it was a simple way to subscribe to RSS feeds over email. And that was it back in the day when Twitter was all over your mobile phone, dating myself a little bit, but there was no uh, like mobile apps or anything for Twitter. It was all SMS, right? So uh, <laughs> I remember I was living in New York at the time and my mom wanted a way to follow my Twitter feed and I was about, about to try and teach her how to use Twitter because it was pretty hard to use early <laughs> on. It was like, I don't know, it'd be cool if you could just subscribe to an RSS feed via email, you know, because most people don't know what an RSS feed is. And yeah, a couple of years later, we had more than 250,000 active users and, and we were sending millions of emails every uh, every month. And so it was a really cool learning experience and we made tons of mistakes and it was, it was a lot of fun to kind of get into that. But yeah, that's sort of what started the journey for us, at least trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to do support together? And, uh, we started thinking about the problem. That might be the coolest founding story. Like my mom wanted a way for us to follow me on Twitter. And so I <laughs> developed it, right? <laughs> and then we had 250,000 active users after yeah. that. <laughs> if you go, if you go about your life and career, and try to make your mom happy, I think you're in a pretty good spot. I think so, yeah. So how were you, I guess just to further illustrate the problem, I mean, that's that's obviously a shit ton of users. How were you guys managing support, feature requests? Like, what did that look like? It must have been a nightmare. It was, we were sharing a Gmail inbox because frankly, I just hated the idea of changing the customer experience. I didn't want them to have to log into a customer portal or get some email back it looked like it was sent by a robot that had ticket numbers and please reply above this line. I just it didn't resonate with me, that experience, and I didn't feel like it would resonate with my customers. And so uh, we, we just sort of pained our way through using a, a shared Gmail inbox and we would make all sorts of mistakes as a result of it because Gmail is not really meant for a team of people to use. And so we were, we were struggling with the problem, the challenge that, uh, firsthand from day one, and that was a really pivotal part of our and uh, remains today like dog fooding our own product experiencing the only our own challenges uh, trying to solve them with with help scout has has always been the, the the most important source of inspiration that we have i love that you said you didn't want to change the customer experience because i think i read somewhere in an interview that you gave that you, sometimes necessarily you didn't even really want the user to know that they were using like a help desk software you wanted it to be that seamless right and, and that sort of baked into their experience. So what did those early iterations look like? How did, how did you go about developing the product that you were looking for? Yeah, one of the marketing headlines that we had used, which really did resonate with a lot of people, was Help Scouts, like the first invisible help desk. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good value um, prop. Meaning that your customers never see it, right? There's never any branding. Uh, because I think it's, 
it's kind of shameless that help desks, different brands promote their, they provide a link to their own crap at the bottom of every customer email. I think that's really shitty. So, uh, I just, I didn't like that experience at all. And, and I, I resonated with the fact that, Oh, I don't have to customize a customer portal or worry about authentication. I don't have to send my customers through that whole process. They could just shoot me an email and I shoot them an email back. What's broken about that? Nothing really seemed broken about that to me. So that's kind of where we started. And who were those first? Uh, so uh, first, I guess just to to level set, what what year did Help Scout uh, finally launch in? So we started building the product in late 2010. We didn't actually incorporate or launch the product until 2011. We launched in April 2011. So worked on it for about eight months before we were able to launch. Any sort of proof of concept projects or, or like what did those, who were those first few users and how did you test the, you know, the, those first few rounds? Oh yeah. I mean, we were using it ourselves within maybe three or four months and it, it wasn't nearly good enough for anybody else to use, but it was actually better than Gmail just from a collaborative standpoint. <laughs> and so we were actually able to use the product pretty early on and just make a bunch of decisions and uh, based on our own experience, which was really helpful because uh, you know, a lot of a lot of startups early on will spend a lot of their cycles doing user research, trying to understand the problem, trying to develop the right solution. And I find that especially in the early stages, you can move so much faster as a company as you're developing a product if you are the customer. And I've always wanted to build products where I'm I'm the primary customer. I can solve my I can scratch my own itch. We can dog food the product and have a really good understanding of, of what customers need. So that was super important for, for us from day one. How many people were working on Help Scout uh, in 2010, 11, and you know, when you ended up launching? Just the three of us, the co-founders. So I was, you know, the one thing that was really great about the founding team is that we all knew how to build products. We didn't know how to build a software business necessarily. None of us were quote unquote business guys, but we did know how to build pretty good software. And so we had to learn the business part on the fly, but just the three of us were able to make it pretty darn far. Uh, we launched the product and it was probably another year before we actually hired anybody. We just kept cranking away. And just for a, a lot of people that are listening to this, uh, are, are, uh, there's a great chance that they're users of Help Scout. If not, they've heard of it. But just for those that haven't, I guess the, the basic functionality um, uh, of what Help Scout does and, and, and how it functions. Yeah, so we make, you know, the way that I talk to other people about it is that it's a customer service product for customer-centric businesses. You know, we, we really designed a product uh, that we believe is just a better way to talk with your customers, whether that's chat, which is something we're working on now, whether it's over email, whether it's creating self-service content that's engaging and kind of just in time right where you need it. We make products that help you facilitate those conversations with customers. And by the way, it remains invisible in most every case. There's never been a customer portal or anything like that. You can just set it up so that your team can share an email inbox. It doesn't have to be directly related to customer service. We have customers that, that use the product to talk with in a customer-facing capacity uh, in all sorts of ways. There's all sorts of different use cases for shared email inboxes, where you, you need 10, 25, 100, uh, 200 people sharing the same inbox, and we're able to provide a really simple user interface that looks and feels a lot like email, 
but yet it can function at that kind of scale with many people working in the same space. And you mentioned earlier that you didn't want it to feel enterprisey, the the customer portal. So in those early days, uh, how did you, I guess, who were the first initial users, a hundred or so users, and how did you go about, uh, you know, attracting them? Yeah. So we, we've always, I've always felt like I knew that I was going to be in a market with a bunch of 800 pound gorillas, which I love, by the way, I love being in a market with, with that kind of, uh, traction because that means I don't have to educate the market. The market's already educated. I just need to, to laser focus on a specific segment of that market where I feel like I can outperform the 800 pound gorillas. And so from day one, it was all about betting on things that you can't write a check for. Because anything you can write a check for, you better believe the 800-pound gorillas are going to do that. <laughs> so we invested in content strategy from day one, even when we weren't good at it. Because the three of us weren't necessarily, that's not really a core competency. But we invested in creating content on our blog, talking about the product we were building, talking about the customer service space from day one, because I felt like that was a really important way to build our brand. So aside from content and just trying to uh, write things that resonated with our potential, with our target customer, we were in Boston at the time. So uh, brief sidebar, we uh, took part in the Techstar Startup Accelerator early in 2011. So the three of us moved to Boston. We all lived in a tiny apartment together and worked 18-hour days to try to launch the project. And as a result, we were actually in a space called Dogpatch Labs. It was actually in the Microsoft building in Cambridge. And uh, at Dogpatch Labs, there's lots of different startups doing their thing. And so I would literally take my computer door to door, so to speak, and ask people to do some user testing for us, tell them about the product, uh, tell them about the mission we that we had and the, and the challenges we were trying to solve. And those ended, those folks ended up being some of our very first customers. So, uh, yeah, it was basically a door-to-door sale starting off. <laughs> That's great. And, and yeah, I mean, early on, too, after launch, um, you guys had raised a, a, a few hundred thousand eventually in, in, in seed funding. But it's not like you guys were throwing a ton of money at paid advertising and, and all that kind of stuff, right? So, so content... It, content was really the the first uh, lever that sort of allowed you to acquire customers. Yeah, because again, and and we invest in paid spending today, but it never has. I don't think at any point in our history it's ever represented more than like fifteen percent of our customer acquisition. Because again, there's a lot of big companies with unlimited resources that can invest in those same things, and you you're going up against them paying thirty five, forty, fifty dollars a click for some of the the most important keywords. And so that's not really a sustainable business model for us. We knew that upfront. And so we were investing things that would grow the brand because the brand is pretty defensible. You can't write a check for that. You have to put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into it. And so from, yeah, from the very beginning, it was kind of about cultivating uh, a content strategy and just cultivating a brand message that, that I felt like resonated with people and, and felt unique. And that's still, I think, for me at least, when I think about Help Scout, obviously, uh, after the product, I think about the blog and, and the, the, the illustrative style of, of, of all the featured images too. I think that, uh, a, a lot of people I talk to, Help Scout always seems to come up when we talk about great, great business blogs. Uh, so I guess to, to skip ahead and, and obviously we'll come back, but today, does, does content still sort of function as, as the, uh, uh, sort of your your highest leverage channel for for generating leads and, and new customers. 
Absolutely. It's, it, it's the, it's the gift that keeps on giving if you do it right. <laughs> uh, today we, we earn over 400,000 unique visitors every month to our, our blog and our website. And that really drives a lot of growth for the company and it drives growth in a very organic kind of, uh, values aligned way, right? Like we don't have to make any compromises on our core values in order to sustain this kind of growth. And so it's felt really good and is a really great way to, to build the brand. And we've got a really outstanding team of folks uh, behind our content strategy, even though it's, it's actually not that big of a team. Emily and Matt are two people on our team that really run the whole thing. Uh, we have a lot of guest authors and a lot of smoke and mirrors to make it make it look a lot bigger than it really is. <laughs> And uh, I've talked, I've spoken to Emily. She's great. And she's from Basecamp, right? So you're really taking that Basecamp inspiration to, to another level. Yeah. What better way to earn for your idol than to just try to hire some of them? <laughs> right, right. Uh, so I guess besides the door to door in those early days, like the literal door to door, what else, what other things worked in terms of generating your, you know, your first 100 users, 200, 500, 1,000? Was it, was it content the whole way? Like what, what, what kind of things, worked for you? Yeah, so I've never been a hard sell person. I, I think a lot of times it comes down to the founder and, or the founding team and what their core competencies are, and they're going to leverage those as much as possible in order to, to reach that kind of initial phase of growth. And for us, our core competency is making products. And so what I was doing was user research. Every time somebody, so we required phone number whenever you signed up for Help Scout, not for sales purposes, but I would actually call you. I called every single person that signed up for several months and just asked them a few questions. Hey, what problem are you trying to solve? How did you find us? And, uh, you know, what are, you, what are your initial impressions of the product, right? Like I would just try to have a conversation. It's not about converting whatsoever. Uh, if you would just talk to me for a few minutes, I would just like to learn more about what, what problem you're trying to solve and, and whether Help Scout might, might be able to, to fix it. And if not, uh, what could we do to change that? And so I, it was all pure user research, right? And so uh, we were able to move really fast in the early days on product. And so after I talked to several hundred people, I had a really good sense of what people wanted and I could finish their sentences. And once I could finish their sentences, it was all about just trying to dial in that product. And over the course of the first year, most people know, I mean, help desks or customer service products, whatever you want to call them, they have a lot of, it's a lot of code. It's a lot of product and features, like they're big products. So it took us about a year to just build up enough functionality so that we could acquire customers at a high rate. And so uh, we just worked on dialing that in, making sure that uh, we cared about every pixel along the way. It wasn't just about replicating specific functionality, but it was about how uh, we went about rep replicating that functionality and piece by piece, I guess people just started signing up. So investing in content and just investing in the overall product experience has been the plan from day one. There's, there haven't been a whole lot of just magical, oh, wow, that grew our business 100%. Uh, there haven't been any of those moments, at least for us. Uh, does anybody have those moments? I, I would love to see those. <laughs> like the, I mean, uh, we did this like, one thing and grew by 150%, right? In three months or something like that. <laughs> well, like uh, my friends at ConvertKit, I'm a big fan of ConvertKit and Nathan Berry and the team over there. Uh, another just incredible bootstrap business. And something that they've done over the years that's been really compelling is affiliates are actually a really big part of their strategy. So that's something that we just never 
truly invested in. Maybe it wasn't the right target customer fit, but that's a channel that's been fascinating to me that I've just, I've frankly never experimented with. And maybe it only works for certain businesses, but it does seem like there are other models out there, other tactics that you can implement in order to grow that are not necessarily just write a check for it. And affiliate seems to be one of those, but yeah, we, we, uh, we don't have any magic, magic bullets for sure. And you talked earlier about Basecamp, Litmus companies that in their early days, Basecamp still to this day, bootstrapped. So was that, um, was that sort of really part of the, you know, the overall, um, I guess, core values of, of Help Scout in those early days? Because like we mentioned earlier, you uh, raised a couple hundred thousand in seed funding uh, over those first four years, um, but nothing, nothing significant in terms of, of VC funding. So um, I guess talk about that decision in those early days not to pursue, or, or maybe you did, but not to pursue um, any sort of significant rounds in funding and instead, you know, uh, build a, a self-funded and efficient business first. Yeah, so it took us about 18 months to get profitable once we launched the product. And I'm a huge believer the people around me make fun of me for it because I talk about it all the time, but I'm a really big believer in constraints and financial finances are one of those things that you can, it's a constraint that you can implement on your business that will force you to focus on the right things. And if you've got a million bucks in the bank, it's easy to focus on things like office furniture <laughs> and <laughs> ping pong tables, people just by hiring, right? Like that's always an, a good answer to a problem is people hire more people. Uh, but if you're constrained by money, then you can't answer the questions like that. You actually have to focus on the right things and make sure your, uh, your, the ROI is absolutely there. And that's something that Basecamp has talked a lot about over the years. So while bootstrapping is not necessarily a core value, um, and we can get into the funding strategy a little bit later, but while it's not a core value, I, I'm a huge believer that it can constrain the business in all the right ways and, and force you to kind of focus on the right things. And so from that standpoint, at least for those first 18 to 24 months, it was massive for us. It really helped us uh, figure out the business. And, uh, you know, we didn't raise money until we were profitable. So uh, I felt like that was the right way to go about things. It also gave us leverage in the fundraising discussion that I, I insisted on. I just wanted to have leverage. I wanted to be able to work with whatever VC I wanted to work with uh, because I wanted them to be values aligned. And so I had to, I had to build a story for a couple of years in order for that to make sense for us. Right. And, and I think uh, in in doing that, uh, I suppose that you need to have a really clear roadmap, right? And prioritization is, is critical, um, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with those constraints, as you said. So, um, I guess like what, what were some of your priorities during those first 12, 18, 24 months in terms of both product and, and sort of, uh, scaling the business, whether that was adding more, uh, adding more heads to the team. Um, what, what were, what were some of your priorities in those days? Yeah. So from a roadmap standpoint, it's all about just being able to finish the customer sentences. And so I can't point to any one thing that was incredibly impactful. You know, we were just building out basic things like search and <laughs> reports and things like that. But from a cultural standpoint, 
it was really important for us to learn how to hire. None of the three of us had ever hired anybody before. And to be honest, at least in hindsight, we were terrible at it. So uh, even though we had limited uh, capital to work with, we did want to try to start building the team. And so uh, made a bunch of mistakes. So between 2011 and 2014, we, uh, you know, we ended up parting ways with 71% of the people that we hired. <laughs> wow. Uh, really bad at hiring. Uh, but actually, <laughs> since then, you know, we've, we've, we've totally turned that around, uh, 2015. So I think it was like 11 people that we parted ways with between 2011 and 2014. And since then we've only parted ways with 15 people and we've hired 75. Uh, so it's, it's totally changed. We learned how to hire. We learned what it takes, uh, to succeed in our remote culture. And we've been able to dial that in, but, but man, it was really challenging. And that, that's one way in which the initial capital, like a few hundred thousand bucks really helped us was to just be able to make some of those mistakes and rebound from them and, and not let it like completely sink the business. So uh, it was really helpful from that standpoint, even those first, you know, three, four five hires, we learned a ton about our, what, what kind of culture we wanted to build, what kind of people we wanted to work with all sorts of things. So I can't just let that go, right? Especially because you're talking about remote, which is something that, you know, I've had some experience in, but so I guess what were some of those lessons learned, you know, after after having to part ways with I think you said around 11 people and you said you 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 learned some hard lessons. I guess what was it specifically um that 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 helps got needed to get better at and specific I guess to the remote culture. What what did you learn from that? The hiring process is pretty different for remote employees. So I, I was working in Boston at the time, and Boston is a very co-located type of city. Most most companies there uh, love having an office. And uh, what I had observed was that when a great candidate was available, it was a matter of days before that person was hired at, at one of the the top tier companies, which by the way, didn't include help scout. So that was my first problem. Uh, and I just figured I need to, I need to shake things up. I'm not going to be able to compete with HubSpot and the like, and trying to, and trying to hire the, the best possible people. And not to mention the fact that they were completely off the market after a few days. Whereas in remote, our average time to hire is about 40 days. And we found that People that are looking for remote jobs like being thoughtful about the process, like taking their time, and like getting to know the company along the way. And that's very much the pace at which we like to conduct a hiring process. We think it's beneficial for both sides, no pressure involved. And so we just had to figure out, okay, it's okay for us to take our time with the hiring process. We're just not going to force a sense of urgency. If it's the right fit, we're going to find the right person and we're going to pursue that process diligently until both sides feel excited about the future. And so it just meant, you know, for one, making it so that people have to complete a project. The project typically takes four to six hours, but every role at Help Scout takes on some form of project where we get to work with them. We get to see the work in action. A lot of people can talk the talk really well, but they don't always back it up with their skill level. And so just by just by way of implementing a project and working with people on that project, giving them critical feedback, maybe taking a couple turns on it just so that you get the sense of what it's like to work together was massive, totally, totally changed our hiring process overnight, just going through the, the process of doing a project. Whereas in a co-located culture, 
that's much more challenging to do. You might bring somebody in for a full day interview and have them whiteboard some stuff, but it's just a totally different pace. And I found that within a remote culture, in that context, we've been able to be a little bit more thoughtful and methodical about the process. And uh, it certainly worked to our advantage. Right. And, and talk about, uh, it seems like companies too, that really embrace the remote culture and remote model, whether that's a hundred percent remote, 50% remote. I think litmus was like 60% remote, but it seems like they almost become known for that uh, in a, in a great way, right? It becomes part of their, their DNA and they're sort of defined by that. Um, and you, you've since left Boston, right? You're, you're in Boulder, Colorado. So talk about just how the remote culture has, uh, you know, other ways besides, you know, the obvious people working from home, uh, ha- has impacted the company and your brand positively. Oh man. And negatively been... too. If, if there's, if there's some of that too, you know, it may be negatively. I just haven't seen it. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm aware of just extraordinary benefits. And from day one, I always felt like, look, you're making a choice. You either want to hire, to have the best possible team, the most talented possible team, or you want to have the most talented possible team within a 20 mile radius. And there's a huge, huge delta (laughs) between those two options, in my opinion. And if you were willing to accept some of the trade-offs that you'd have to accept in order to to make a remote culture work uh, at a high level, then the reward for in terms of talent uh, and acquisition is unbelievable. And I, I, and, and, but those remote folks, those people that love working remote jobs that are highly skilled and passionate about their craft, they, you, they have to be able to find you. And so from very early on, we knew that if we're going to be a remote culture, we're going to have to set ourselves apart as a top tier remote culture and build a brand around it. And so that's, that's what we tried to do. So a lot of the writing that you'll find on our blog is not just about customer service. It's also about building culture and especially remote culture and and some of the things that we do to try and set ourselves apart and, and make it so that people are super happy and doing their best work at help scout. And so we've always treated it as an equally important aspect of our brand. It's not only about customer support and customer experience. It's about, uh, building a culture that people love and that they resonate with and is, that they're successful within and in which they can do their very best work. And so that's something I'm deeply passionate about anyways. And I feel like it's been a, I feel like it's been a really great decision. It's kind of set us apart to be on the bleeding edge of what remote companies are doing today has really allowed us to appeal to a level of talent that I'm kind of in awe of. I mean, we're getting hundreds of applications for every new position, which is a really great problem to have. Yeah, for sure. And so you have offices, obviously, in, in Boston, but you also have a small one in Boulder where you're, where you're located? Yeah, both very small. Um, you know, there there's five people in the general vicinity of Boulder, and I just like going into an office. So we have uh, we have one here. And then in Boston, we have one that's technically larger, but uh, any given day in either office, there might be one person. <laughs> so <laughs> 75 plus people, we still consider ourselves 100% remote. 75 employees, is that what you guys are at now? Yes. Nice. Um, so, and and you mentioned this earlier about the, the funding strategy. Uh, you decided in, I think you mentioned earlier, it was 2015. You yes. raised your first your first round and, and shortly after that with the same, with the Foundry Group, the same um, the same amount. So talk about the decision uh, in total. It was around, what, $12 million? 
Um, why, mm-hmm. why then? And, and what was the, uh, what was the strategy behind that? Well, as I mentioned, funding's not necessarily been a core value for us. It's, it's a tool. And the way I've heard funding described is, which, which I really like this, is it's fuel, right? And it's actually rocket fuel. And so if you're not careful, if you don't know exactly where you're headed as a business, that fuel can carry you in a direction that is not a good direction. So we spent a couple of years really understanding our customer, really understanding the, the, the segment of the market that we wanted to own to make sure that we can make the most of the fuel once once we decided, hey, this makes sense. And, and we got to a point where we're profitable as a business, we're growing the team, we're about 17 people at the time. Everything was good, but if I had a million bucks in the bank, I'd know exactly how to spend it. And I, I, I wanna grow this business, I wanna build a great business. That's the goal, that's the core value that I'm dedicated to. I wake up every morning thinking about making great stuff building a great business that people love to work for, that people love to do business with. None of that is actually directly correlated to funding. I think the the key if you're doing any fundraising is just to make sure that fundraising opportunity doesn't compromise any of the goals and values that you set for your company. And so I had to be very thoughtful and intentional about what it meant for us to raise six million bucks at the time. And I knew there were very few uh, very few uh, funds or uh, VC firms that would partner with us without compromising our values. And Foundry Group was top of my list here in Boulder. Uh, I've just had tremendous respect for them over the years. And long story short, it worked out. And then Converge, another small fund from Boston, whom I'm well connected with uh, the the partners there, the the two women that run that firm are awesome. And so just by way of partnering with two people I was able or, or two different funds I was able to get sort of the rocket fuel that we wanted in order to grow this business and kind of take it to the next level without having to compromise our core values we had already proven that remote works we had already proven that we can build a serious business uh, and we were profitable at the time and so we just we didn't have to make any compromises if I'm honest we just wanted to build a great business together and that was very much the the goal and uh, so we raised another six million from the same folks about 18 months after we did it the first time in 2015, and now we're at a point where we've got all the rocket fuel we need, and we we look to build a sustainable business from here out. I, we have no plans of of doing any further fundraising. Did you find that you needed to, or not needed to, but did, uh, was there any sort of uh, massaging that needed to go on with with, with the with the team? Because I've been at a company that was prided itself on on bootstrap right and then took on a significant round of funding and while that's great they were really careful in communicating the why of that to the group because they had so long for so long identified as bootstrap and it was a badge of honor and it was in like the uh you know, uh, when, when somebody would go speak somewhere, their bio, it would, it would actually be in there. They're at litmus or, or, you know, it it was litmus, uh, and the, uh, bootstrapped since 2006 or, and so like it was, it was a big thing that everybody identified with. So did you find that, um, there was any sort of, uh, I don't know, way to communicate that to the team or how, how did, how did you go about that? Yeah, I think that's the real reason why we decided not to associate bootstrapping with our core values and who we were. Because in the end, fundraising is a tool, and it's a tool that you don't have to use. You could keep it keep it in the tool shed, and that's awesome. That's amazing. I mean, a lot of the businesses I respect most have done have taken just that path. But 
for us, it was never part of our identity. It, it, it didn't necessarily matter. What, we, what mattered was building a really great product and building a really great business that people uh, loved working for and loved doing business with. And so within the context of our goals, funding or no funding wasn't that big of a deal. And so we talked about it. We talked ex- exactly about why this wasn't really changing the plan for us. It was just giving us more fuel. And we lived up to it. I mean, we did that you know, three years ago and nothing's changed. So I think we've been able to prove with the team that this was a really great tool. It was a really great decision in our particular case. It's not something I have any regrets about. And so uh, it's just enabled us to to continue to, to grow it as fast as possible without compromising our values. I mean, still today, we're able to operate the business in a very aggressive way because we've we've kind of got this war chest of cash that we're able to deploy to try and try and uh, figure this thing out. So where do you see, uh, like, what is the future uh, of Help Scout sort of hold? I know, you know, I've seen a lot about live chat and, and you guys are working really hard on that. I've seen some content around that, which has over the last couple of years become a, a, a crowded and, and massive space in itself. Um, so where do you see, I guess, that competitive landscape shaking out in, in jumping into, you know, having live chat to, to supplement, uh, you know, the, the email, um, and also like what, what the, uh, what the overall vision going forward is for help scout. Yeah. People ask me this a lot. And in a lot of ways, the vision and my goals and my motivations when I wake up every day have not changed whatsoever from day one. I haven't really been motivated by the revenue i've been motivated by making great stuff that's my goal i love to wake up and work with people that i really truly admire that are excellent craftsmen and make great stuff with them that's that's what drives me and by in order to make great stuff you have to be able to finish the customer sentences you don't get to decide what's great they do the market does and so that really drives us forward and whether it means building live chat or whether it means building something else I'm kind of indifferent, although we are our own customer, so we have our own needs and we have our own desires for the product. But uh, yeah, live chat has completely exploded and I think it's going to be a really great thing for us. Uh, but again, I, it's like it's, uh, we, we looked at a market that was full of different products and solutions, but none of which seemed really truly optimized for a great customer experience. And so Essentially, we're taking the same approach with chat that we did with email. We're going into a really crowded space where nobody thinks there's any room. And we're going, we're just talking with hundreds of customers and saying, no, there's a totally different way of doing this that nobody's paying attention to. And we feel like there's a need in the market for products like this. And so for the last year, we've been working towards, towards that chat vision. And I'm pretty excited about how it's coming together. There, there's always an abundance of those sorts of problems to go out and solve. And we just so happen to be in like the biggest SaaS market uh, ever, which is like CRM. And uh, customers will never stop being important to businesses. And so in the end, the goal is just to continue to make great stuff and uh, build a team of passionate remote folks that like to build great stuff. And from then on, like, just don't screw it up for the most part. <laughs> Try to keep making the culture stronger as we go. There's a there's a piece of content there somewhere if you haven't written it already around finishing finishing your customer sentences. Uh, you, you've obviously said it a few times. I love that. And uh, I mean, back from going door to door, you guys have practiced that, and and it shows. Um, when can uh, so so when can users expect the live chat? When are you, when are you planning to launch that? 
Man, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> Putting you on the spot. Uh, so we're using it today in production, uh, although it's it's a bit buggy. But uh, you and I are talking in late April. You know, I'm really hoping that we can have something that the customers can can see and use for themselves within a couple of months. But uh, you know, we we also want to make sure that we're we're launching something that meets our standards of excellence. And so, in in that respect, we're not going to be rushed. It's not like we're the first live chat ever. There's a lot of tools out there that people can use. We want to make sure that we can do it right. And that's that's always the the approach that we've taken is just be more thoughtful. If it takes longer, if we're last to market, it doesn't matter. It's about building the right thing. So yeah, hopefully within a couple of months, we're working really hard on it. I'm excited to see where that goes. Nick, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on and, and, uh, and sharing the whole Help Scout story. Thanks, John. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.